before we get into the sermon this morning, which is the last one in our sermon series from paper to person, I just want to let you know at the end of our service, we're going to end a little bit differently than we do normally. I've got a brief announcement to share with everybody just right after church. So when we sing that last song, Chip is going to remind you, he's going to say, hey, don't, don't go anywhere. Because normally we're like, oh, let's, let's head out and, and get to lunch, even though it's I mean, we get out at a, at a pretty good time, so you can beat all the lunch crowd even, even with this. So it's just going to be a few minutes, so I just want to let you know that that's coming at the end of our church. Um, I, don't know, I don't know about you guys, but I love new stuff. Just, just in general, I like when something is new. I like the way it looks. I like the way it feels. I like the way it smells, uh, for the most part. I guess there are probably some things. Somebody, uh, no, nah, I shouldn't bring this up. I'm going to anyway. Somebody was telling me about how much they love how babies smell. I, I don't know, that new, and I don't know, I just didn't quite get that, so... I've had, I've had three of them, and uh, they, can, they can get kind of stinky. So. Um, but I really, I, really like, I really like new stuff. I used to follow tech news all the time, and I'd always want the latest whatever it was, computer, phone, any of those kinds of things. I would love to be an early adopter uh, for that. Um, I, I even like unboxing new, new stuff. I mean, there are some times where stuff would get shipped in. You know, we'd get something from Amazon, and I'd come home, and the package would be opened, and it'd be sitting there, and I'd, I'd say, who, who opened my thing? It had my name on it. I, wanna, I even want to unbox it and see it all perfectly unwrapped and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, a few years ago, I, I got a brand new smartphone. And I, I like when things are new. I like when they look perfect. But I also like, I don't, I don't like cases and stuff on them. And I went to this retreat with some friends. And I sat in an Adirondack, Adirondack chair. It's easy for me to say. And this was like a few days after I got in this phone. And I sat down, and the angle's a little different than most chairs that you sit in, and the phone just slid right out of my pocket, hit the concrete patio, and cracked right there. And I was just, I was devastated, and my friends were making fun of me, deservedly so. I didn't have any case on it or any of that kind of stuff. That's the problem with really new stuff. It's really hard to keep it looking, uh, looking beautiful. But the other thing is, I, I felt sick about it, but I refused to get it fixed. Like, there's no way I was going to spend the money. I, I just bought this thing. It was never, I wasn't going to fix the screen. Uh, but the older thing, the older I've gotten, the greater appreciation I've gained for older things being taken care of. Now, some of you might think, yeah, because it's projection, right? Because I want to make sure some of you are just now picking up on that, what I mean by that. Because the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, the older things are fine. Like, they're, they're good and they're useful and, and they can be appreciated, especially if you care for them and use them and, and restore them. Uh, listen, there's certainly a time and place for change or moving on or retiring or getting rid of something that is broken. But as a whole, I know we really don't have a good balance of this culturally. In fact, it was about 1955 in Life magazine where if we had had the foresight to know this was coming, that we probably could have recognized. I know it's, it's maybe tough to see this because I'm staying in the way, but it says throw away living. Disposable items cut down household chores. And so there's this huge celebration, this picture of all, or all these new disposable things, like paper and plastic things that you just toss and, and get rid of, that, that everybody thought, this is so great because it's going to save us time on all these kinds of things. And we just end up becoming, we've become a throwaway society. We buy cheap junk, breaks easily, we toss it away, buy another version of it. Um, it's largely because we're addicted to cheapness and disposability. And we'd all be happier if we had less stuff. And some of you are not going to be convinced by this, but that's fine. You'd be happier with having less things of higher quality. 
We, we'd all be in better, in better shape. But it's just how our economy is wired at this point, and it takes discipline to think beyond the materialism and consumerism and the way we're marketed to. Um, and sometimes we just have enough money to waste on things like you know, paper plates and plastic cups and that kind of thing. But one of the things that I've really come to appreciate a lot more is when something is restored. Now, I'm thinking classic cars, you know, that kind of stuff. If somebody came up to me, I love Corvettes. They're my favorite. If somebody came up to me and said, I will give you a, either a brand-new mid-engine Corvette or a fully restored 69 Stingray, I don't know that I can make that choice. Like, it, it would be really tough. And I, I would probably lean toward the, the older Stingray just because, um, I, I don't know, there's just something about a classic being brought to life. I don't know if any of you spend any time on YouTube, but I love seeing that kind of stuff when somebody's restoring a tool or they're restoring a car or they're restoring a home or that kind of thing. They're just taking something that uh, someone else, you know, maybe doesn't have a vision for. They're ready to toss it out and they just give it brand new life and, and make it amazing. Um, there's a really great sense of accomplishment when you restore something or you fix something up. Again, YouTube is great for this because I'll take things that I have no clue how to fix them or repair them, and I'll go on YouTube, and I'll try to do it. Now, don't ask Renee how she feels about my DIY efforts um, and how quickly they get done. Uh, you might get a totally different perspective. Sometimes one has a, a greater appreciation than one has ability. Um, we also love restoration stories when they apply to the lives of people. These are some of the most powerful stories that we tell and that we appreciate and that we consume. Um, the act, after of the before uh, the inspiration of t inspirational tale of where the person was and how they are now in this brand new, renewed place. We don't spend a whole lot of time in the middle part, right, because we, we just want to see somebody when they're completely fixed. Um, we call it a redemption story and not a, an I'm working on it story. And yet, that's the most important part, is that I'm working on it. We like the beginning because we like to see somebody who's up really, really high, you know, have a big fall from grace because that's entertaining because it makes us feel better than that person, right? Just, we're just being honest. And then the, we like the end part, the reemergence from ashes to glory. But it's the middle part where all the real important work is done. Most of the time we withhold approval of the worth of somebody's restoration efforts until we can see the finished product. And yet that's not the thing that matters nearly as much. It probably explains why we throw so many things away or why we don't work on maintaining quality as we go. Sometimes we just don't have the vision for what something can be or what a relationship that we have with somebody else should be. And we've been talking about that through various encounters with Jesus over the past few weeks in matters of shame. We've talked about shame. We've talked about doubt. We've talked about dignity. We've talked about grace. We've talked about who's in and who's out and how when we trust Jesus at his word and put his word into practice, he moves from just being an idea on paper to someone who actually changes and transforms our life into who we are restored to be like. The fact of the matter is that we all come to God broken, every single one of us, and he's willing to restore every single one of us. There are no throwaway people. On the one hand, it's very difficult for us to humble ourselves for, for, the, for the forgiveness that this kind of belief and faith requires, to participate in when it comes to others. On the other hand, it can be very difficult to humble ourselves to acknowledge how our pride gets in the way of the work that needs to be done, because we all need work. Don't elbow the person next to you, but you could, because whoever it is, they, they, they need work. I think most of us are aware of that. We probably have some unhealthy things that we've internalized that keep us from the work that God can and does do in us. You know, we'll compare ourselves to somebody else. I'm not as bad as this person, so I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. Or maybe some of us think that we're not worth it. 
not worth the time and effort, or some of us think that we can't be fixed at all, it's not, not possible. And, and some of us just think that there are more pressing matters in life. There are other things that I need to take care of. There's a passage in John chapter 8 that we're going to be reading together. It's in verses 1 through 11, so if your Bible's with you this morning, go ahead and turn to that. That illustrates uh, the way in which Jesus restores us. But before we read the text, open up your Bible or your Bible app. As as you look at that text, you're going to see a note um, in this this section of Scripture. Most of the time it's in double brackets in in the text. And it says, there's a little bit of note for this passage, and it says that the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So I'm going to take just a brief couple minute, like little crash course in textual criticism. Are you familiar with that term, textual criticism? And it, okay, maybe like a couple, a couple of us, okay. So the Bible is the best, most well-attested ancient text that exists. So, for example, um, we look at Shakespeare, you know, copies of his plays, how many of those do we have? Maybe, maybe 10, maybe 20, something like that. Aristotle, like what do, we, what do we actually have from him? Maybe we have five, you know, pieces of paper that have, have some words that are, that are attributed to him, that kind of thing. For the Bible, there's tens of thousands of, of documentation, all right? So as far as it comes to, like, what, is, what does the Bible have to say and all of these copies of things that we have to, to develop our, our text and what we have, that's what we look at. We look at all of these things. So this passage of Scripture is pretty late in, as far as when it comes into being a part of the copies of Scripture. Um, and so probably what happened is somewhere along the line, there's an oral tradition that somebody had heard that was passed down about Jesus, or, or there was somebody who wanted to provide some commentary about how Jesus interacts with people, and they included this in the text. So that's why this, this is there. It doesn't have anything to do with the historicity or reliability of the Bible. It's just this particular passage of, of Scripture that, that is included in the text that didn't exist within the most earliest manuscripts. All right? If you have more questions about that, I would love to, to, to answer those, and we can talk about that more because there's so much more that we can say, say about it. Um, what it does is it provides commentary about the common character and nature of Jesus that we find all throughout the New Testament. All right? So let's read the text. In John chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are a couple things that get a lot of attention within, within the story. One of them is that the woman is brought before Jesus. But I don't know if you know this, but it takes two to commit adultery. So the woman, is that okay? We got a little uncomfortable with that. All right. Okay. I, I kind of see where we are now. All right. We'll, we'll move forward with that in mind. So, so the woman is brought, but where's the man? 
I mean, probably some wealthy guy protecting the reputation of his son, to be honest, some, something, something like that. Um, but really, she is just being used. The Pharisees don't actually care that she's caught in sin. She's just being used uh, to try to trap Jesus into saying something that would be blasphemous or that would get, enable them to arrest him or, or do, do something with him. And so she's being used in this. Um, she's being trapped, and uh, they want Jesus to somehow go against the law of Moses because he has a habit of showing grace and forgiving sinners. And so we don't know exactly what, what the situation is here other than somehow this woman was caught having sex outside of marriage, and they bring him to Jesus because they want, they, they want to catch him in not being graceful or in not providing justice against sin. The second thing that gets a lot of attention in the story is what, what did Jesus write on the ground? Because we don't know. Jesus kneels down and he's writing on the ground. There's so many different ideas of, of, of what this might be. Maybe he's, maybe he's writing down everybody else's sin there in the group. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Kicks and giggles. Get together with a small group, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, think, can you believe that person who, who committed that sin, you know, in pop culture that we talk about? And we're like, yeah, but you remember what you did you know, last week. And we just all kind of know that would be, that'd be awful. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be terrible and so embarrassing. And we would, probably wouldn't come to, come to small group. Um, and maybe, I, I don't know, why did the older ones leave? And maybe he started with them. And he's like, well, you know, Jack over here, this is, this is what he did last week. And Jack's like, man, all right, I'm, I'm leaving. Maybe it's just because they're older and wiser. And they kind of, they kind of understand that what they're doing is, is wrong. Um, and uh, they had the good sense to be embarrassed by using this woman to score uh, religious points against Jesus. But here's what really matters in the story. All right, those are the things that capture our attention. Oh, we really want to know what Jesus wrote, all those kinds of things. Or where was the guy? What happened there? What really matters in the story is that Jesus doesn't let her get tossed out and destroyed. Jesus sees the situation. He knows what the Pharisees are trying to accomplish. They don't actually care about this woman's well-being. They don't care about her soul. They don't care about what God has to say about this. But Jesus doesn't let her get tossed out and destroyed because he knows that despite her broken state, and make, make no mistake, she has sinned, and she is in a broken state, this need not define the whole of her existence. And this is something that is consistent in Jesus' interactions with people. So even though we're taking a part of the text that's not part of the original in, in what, what John uh, placed as he was writing his, um, his biography about Jesus, if we re- look at John chapter 8, verse 11, no, no one's here to condemn me. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus de- declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here's a parallel teaching of Jesus where he says the same thing, essentially, in John chapter 5. He's healed a paralyzed man near the pool of Bethesda. And later Jesus found, found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The two things that this story about Jesus conveys that are most important and most consistent with well-attested facts about Jesus' life and how he treats us and how he interacts with our lives is that one is that Jesus does not condemn her for her sin. This is an important distinction between the word judge and condemn. Jesus does not judge her for her sin. We all have the capacity for change. Every single one of us. Um, everybody that we know. Are, are, there, are there some exceptions to this? Yes, yeah, sometimes. The Christianese way would, would, to say it would be that sometimes people have hardened their hearts, and that's because they have participated in sin to such a degree and such an intensity and such a length and amount of time that it rewires the way that we would say it uh, when we study people's brains and we study addiction is that it rewires our brain chemistry. 
we, we participate in those things long enough. And so, yeah, that does happen. However, it, it makes the restoration process more difficult, not necessarily impossible. And with Jesus, the work is always worth it. It matters. Grace isn't about not making sin a big deal. You know, Jesus isn't looking at this woman and saying, ah, you know, who cares, you're fine, like, let's, let's go hang out. Like, that's, that's not his response here. Um, there's even a rhetorical question that Paul asks in Romans uh, chapter 6. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. When we don't do anything about our sin, we condemn ourselves and consign ourselves to death and separation from, from God. We exchange what we're supposed to experience as a steady, uh, increasing joy over a lifetime for temporary bursts of ecstasy that, that we increasingly do worse and worse things to try to capture when we don't live life the way that God designed for us and establishes for us as disciples of Jesus. What this woman had done was stupid, it was wrong, it was exchanging for a moment what we're exposed to, supposed to experience in a lifetime of ongoing covenant. However, Jesus was not ready to toss her out. Even when condemnation is warranted in this, in this, this time and place, Jesus wants to lead us to restoration. And that's the difference between judgment and condemnation. Jesus makes a judgment call about what's going on in this person's life, in this woman's life, but he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't toss her out. Jesus, uh, you know, tells her at the end, don't sin anymore. Like, go and, and do something, something different with your life. He tells her about her behavior and why it's wrong, but also shows to the crowd around her that this is not the end of the story and that she is more than just damaged goods, that she is valued and worth restoration so many things like that in, in, in our lives. Um, a month or two ago, I can't remember what it is, the timing chain, uh, which is worse than the timing belt going, went on the engine in our 2006 Honda CRV. And um, we're I, very frustrated. It actually happened on a Sunday morning. So I got in to turn on the car to come to church here. And that, that's just how, how, things, how things started that day. Uh, so we had to, had to shuffle. Uh, so we got the, the car towed to the mechanic. The mechanic said, oh, it's your timing change, so uh, you either need to get rid of your car and buy a new one or find a used one, or we can put um, an engine with 170,000 miles on it in there for you for a price that uh, you definitely won't be able to afford. We said, all right, um, let's not do any of those things. Uh, thankfully, we know somebody who's a, an amazing mechanic and um, talked to him, and he said, you need to buy an engine imported from Japan. Now, if you don't know about this, this is, this is important stuff. You can ask me about this later because I'm not going to belabor the story. However, but for a lot less, my dad and I went up to Northern Virginia, picked up an engine that was imported from, from Japan with only 60,000 miles on it, got it put in the CRV, drove it here this morning. It's, it's purring. Like, it's working better than it ever did. Now, um, yes, it was cheaper than buying a new car or a used car, which we wouldn't have been able to do anyway, uh, so it doesn't really matter. However, we were able to, instead of just tossing this thing out, just a little bit of, little bit of research, a little bit of conversation, a little bit of talking with people who know and who have been there. And we were able to, we were able to have a completely different experience than what we, where we thought we were headed. Um, this, this to me is just a picture of how he looks at us. I mean, if our timing chain breaks, he doesn't look at us and say, all right, it's time to toss him out. He says, no, there's, there's an opportunity here to restore. Um, maybe that's a silly illustration. It, 
it, it works, though. Jesus doesn't condemn us, um, and he also doesn't ignore. He doesn't condemn us for our sin, but he also doesn't ignore our sin. Conceptually, this is not difficult to understand, but practically living this out is far more difficult. I don't know if you know this, but if you go up to somebody and say, hey, you know you're sinning, right? Like, let me give you a list of all the things you're doing wrong and that God doesn't like and he's really angry about. Are you cool? You, you good? Like, let's, let's get coffee and talk about that. We can do that anytime. You, you want to? Just tell me what you, what's going on in your life. I'll tell you what's wrong uh, in your life. People don't react well to that. However, when we are there, I didn't mean to clap like that, but it, it works. When we are there for people when life is in pieces and we're there to help them pick those pieces up, we are often given permission to speak the truth. And when we follow Jesus in this approach, when it comes to our own sin and how we live our lives, it gives us some credibility with which to speak into somebody else's life. It's not limited to that, but especially when something that we have personal experience with comes up in somebody else's life, we can say, listen, this is where I was in my sin. Um, this is what I did as a result of faith in God and his love and grace for me. And this is where I am now. And to be able to have that experience in your life, like I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evangelize uh, Japanese domestic motors, like for other people when their timing chain goes, goes out in their Hondas or in their Toyotas. Because that's, that's good news. <laughs> you don't have to buy a new car. You don't have to buy uh, an engine with much more mileage on it. Um, this is an amazing thing from our personal experience to be able to share with other people when we allow God to not ignore our sin, but to help us move to a whole different life experience to be transformed from that into the grace that he wants us. We have an entirely different life approach for living in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, we would miss out on life with God. And so Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more. And the same thing that is the same thing that he would tell us as well. Now, maybe we would think, well, I got baptized, so I said yes to Jesus, you know, know, faith, repentance, you know, confession, you know, belief, all all that kind of stuff. I I got baptized, but um, I don't know if you have, but since I've been baptized, I have sinned since then. I don't, I don't know if any of you have. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but there's, there maybe have been one or, one or two times uh, over the years. And so what, what happens then? Because now, like, isn't all that restoration, I mean, to be taking that 69 stingray that's fully restored and and getting a ding in it, right? Now you're like, oh, what, what have I done? Well, God has a solution for this, and it's called repentance. That's, that's how restoration happens, is through repentance. But the things that keep us from seeing the need to repent are the same things kind of that we talked about a little bit earlier, is that we compare ourselves to other people, or we have pride. Uh, we look at somebody else and say, I'm not as bad as another person, so I'm, I, must be a, I must be a good person. Um, yeah, a good person based on what, though? It's kind of arbitrary if we don't have a foundation for what we're basing that on. Or, or sometimes, um, sometimes it's just because we're too busy. We, we just don't even take the time to consider uh, what the pace at which we're living life and how it's impacting us. Uh, we don't really even think about what we're doing. We're just kind of doing what everybody else does because we just kind of get in line and, and we... We, we follow along, and that, that's, that's what you do. Sometimes it's because we're lazy, and we don't even bother to find out if we're right or wrong. We just kind of, I guess, uh, YOLO, you know. I don't know. It's just it's such a, I know nobody says that anymore, but 
it's such a, it's such a lazy way to approach, approach life. And sometimes it's because we allow our humiliation to overshadow our humility. So um, rather than, rather than being, being humble and recognizing that oh, I've, I've got something that needs to be worked on, I've got something that needs to be restored, and I need some help, and I need to gather with people that are willing to help, help me to do that, which is, which is our small group, which is our church. Um, those are the type of people that we are supposed to be. Um, in our humiliation, we, we kind of hide it out back. We allow trees to grow in it and through it and the bushes to grow up and the grass to grow up and just kind of keep it out, out back there and covered up rather than humbling ourselves for God's mercy and grace. Go and sin no more is either the hardest thing Jesus has ever said and told us or it's the best thing. Our uh, faith tradition, I don't know if you know this, Velocity Christian Church, our faith background is called the Restoration Movement. Um, the, the reason why I think this is so important is because the whole idea behind that is to look, hey, I get there are a lot of traditions out there, there are a lot of doctrines, there are a lot of theologies, there's, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot out there. The whole, the whole background of the restoration movement was to say, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about this? And what did the early church have to do? What, what does God's word, what does scripture have to say about it? Let's Let's try to do those things. And yeah, we're going to have personal things that we do. Like we, we choose to have electricity here. And, and we have instruments and, and we have running water and those kinds of things. It's not in, in the Bible. Well, instruments are. But, but I'm saying like electricity and, and running water is not necessarily in there, right? So we have some, some matters of opinion there. Um, but, but we look at, at the text and say, what, is it, what does it look like to actually be a disciple of Jesus? And, and let's, let's focus on that. Let's, let's try to restore our lives based on that and not necessarily just on tradition or things that people have always done just for the show. Um, this, is, this is a very conspicuous thing that we do in our life when we put this into practice. And there's, uh, there's, there's something I came across years ago, and I've always, um, always kind of not used this as an illustration because... You know, man, this is, I, to me, this is a very powerful picture and, and thought, and I wanted to kind of save it for the right moment. I don't know if this is the right moment or not. You might not think this is very powerful, um, but there is this um, Japanese process of repair, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, so please forgive me. I think it's pronounced kintsugi. And some of you may, may have, have seen this before, uh, but it's a repair technique, um, and it's for, for things like pottery, um, things that you can, you, you have, uh, so, so take this bowl and, and just think about what it looked like when it was shattered and laying on the ground. Several pieces, uh, you know, all, all over the place, you can kind of see the gaps where some things, you know, they couldn't even recover some of the pieces, and yet what, what they've done with this is they've said, um, maybe, maybe the way in which this is broken um, doesn't have to mean that um, this is now garbage. Maybe uh, the way that this was broken can be a, become a part of the story behind this piece. And maybe there can be something more deep and valuable as a result. Because I'm thinking that this, this piece of pottery right here, maybe it was something special. Maybe it was passed on from, from someone's grandmother. May, maybe there's some meaning to that. And you take that thing, just like all of our lives, and, and we, we, we drop it you know, we drop the ball, we drop, we drop ourselves, we, we, we shatter. Um, there are moments like that in all of our lives where sin, that's, that's what it does, the brokenness of our sin. And we could look at that and we could say, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. It's, it's just kind of stuck and, and we, 
we just got to move on and, and kind of forget that it was ever, ever like this. And, and God does something different. He, he puts all the pieces together, but um, in a much more deeper and meaningful way because he does that through Jesus. And so when he looks at us, he doesn't see, he doesn't see just the brokenness and the ugliness of the pieces laying on the ground, but through Jesus, he sees us as something whole. And, and something um, maybe even more special for having been through the repair process. Because these pieces are all glued together, but they also, uh, the glue, uh, part of what's put in there is, maybe you can tell at this point, is, is gold. And so this, this thing becomes more precious and more valuable for having um, gone through the repair process. And because of the value that was put into that repair process. And that's what God does through Jesus. Is that his very own son... Uh, dies and is resurrected uh, to heal our brokenness so that we could be restored back to God. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, uh, Isaiah writes, Yet you, Lord, are a father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. We can either pick up the broken pieces of our lives and toss them out or somebody else's life and toss them out or allow Jesus to put them back together in a more beautiful way. The more we go and sin no more, living a life of repentance, the more our cracks and brokenness become a beautiful reflection and reminder of the restoration power that the Holy Spirit is at work producing in us. When we reflect Christ after our restoration because of the resurrection, it's not because we're now perfect, but that because we know we are no longer condemned by our past, the best is yet to come in a future with God. And God isn't interested in tossing out his creation. He wants to restore us into something better for having been changed by Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this week, um, if there's something that uh, maybe you have been delaying and deal, dealing with, um, maybe something that you've been holding on to the humiliation more than humility of allowing God to, to change and restore in your life, um, I want to encourage you to, to deal head on with that thing, um, to to meet with somebody about, about that thing. Uh, maybe it's somebody that you know who's been through something you've been through. Maybe um, it's, it's you just kind of putting your pride to the side and saying, hey, I just, I just recognize I need a fellow believer in Christ who, who I know has had to be restored to uh, to walk with me through this thing. Uh, I want to encourage you to, to begin that restoration process in your life. Let's pray. God, as we uh, come to this moment together of, of sharing in the time of communion and in, uh, in worship, God, we, we praise you and we thank you for the ways that you have restored us, for the way that you have um, transformed our lives into something that is um, even, even better than it was before, despite having been broken. God, we praise you for this. We honor you for your grace and love and your mercy, the way that you... Um, work out your justice in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.